Welcome to Conversation Justice. I am Jakob Goten and I have Daniel Flynn. We're going to talk about sanctions. It is a very topical subject and we'd like to take a broader view and then look at some sort of some human rights aspects of it and probably finish by thinking about how one can end sanctions and what may happen to us as which has been subject to sanctions. So should we start by going into areas such as uh, penalties, sanctions, embargoes? What do they all mean and who can impose them? Mm. Well, it's, first it's interesting because it kind of is a, a legalistic language for something that exists in the law, but in this case is way more political. So I practice in litigation and family law, and in family cases we have, and in litigation cases, you have a freezing injunction where it's a lot like what's happening with a lot of people subject to sanctions at the moment, where you can order the courts to say they can't move any of their assets, they can't sell or buy or anything. And the test for that is very legalistic and technical. Sanctions, embargoes, penalties on people's assets and um, movement, it seems to be applied much more on a political rather than legal basis. But they can be against individuals, companies, companies run by particular individuals, they could even be at particular states. Well, yeah. I think you mentioned um, Iran before we started. Yeah, so we were speaking about, I think that comes from, that's the other issue of course, is that it's a um, much broader topic because it all of these supranational bodies have to come in. So I think Iran is subject to sanctions following a, a, the, the nuclear deal. We're tripping over into like uh, being a politics podcast, which I don't think we're qualified to do. <laughs> um, embargoes, sticking with politics. I think since the Cuban crisis in the 60s, no Cuban cigar was allowed to be sold in the USA. And I'm not sure if it's changed recently, but I know that it's been it, it was decades, and you hmm. and everyone could smoke them, but the but the Americans. That was it. The, the trade embargo between America and Cuba, wasn't it? Where they put very very broad restrictions, the American government, on any transactional trade between Cuba and America, which makes it you know seem how a political rather than legal decision this is because something like that would be where it's just like no cigars no cars no computers was another thing i remember was that it makes it, it almost impossible to really sort of focus on why you're doing it or justify on a sort of legal level what the thing is for but I suppose you upset as a state and you do this to to justify or, or rectify the situation for which you Upset by putting yeah. pressure on a different, uh, on a different state or entity. You want to make a point, <laughs> yes. But um, so yes, as we said, they are imposed by states, supranational institutions like the EU, the UN, um, the UN, and ultimately they could also be imposed by companies. We have recently seen, for instance, uh, McDonald's moving away from Russia. It's not necessarily a sanction as such, but not selling certain products to certain countries which companies manufacture. We've had uh, Airbus not produce, not not supplying parts to Russia at the moment, and therefore um, the Russian um, airlines are, will be or are already unable to operate uh, their fleet. 
Um, so anyone can really impose a sanction as long as they are strong enough to be listened to or they could hurt somebody. Exactly. Which gives you, I think, a telling view of how public relations focus these things can be a lot of the time because, you know, Airbus is a limited company and McDonald's is structured through no doubt hundreds and thousands of franchise agreements and they they would be quite within their rights if they wanted to to continue trading in Russia despite what's going on at the moment but they've chosen that just like a lot of governments are saying oh we're not going to in trade with Russia even though they barely do anyway this is a public relations exercise where they're saying the cost to us of continuing to operate our businesses in a country which is currently you know, country non grata in the international mm. order is probably higher than the benefit to us of having those burgers sold in Siberia or whatever it is. You did say, Daniel, that this should not be a political podcast. We do need to be mindful of it. Okay, so I was going to talk about Germany and their mm. approach to sanctions, but let's not make it political <laughs> and move on to something we can actually talk about with some degree of authority. <laughs> And that's the legal part of it. We did have a chat before starting this podcast about what sanctions actually do and who can decide to impose them. Of course, companies can choose to trade with a particular company or particular state. But how come a state can just freely decide that some persons are persons non grata just because they um, they choose to do so. Because we do have something known as the Human Rights Act. We do have the European Convention on Human Rights guaranteeing our absolute right to deal with our own property as, he, as we wish. But this goes against that. Uh, do you want to comment on this, Daniel? <laughs> yes, yeah, because there is a protocol to the European Convention on Human Rights. It's a bit of a sort of footnote afterthought to the convention, which is otherwise focused on you know, human rights as opposed to property rights. But there is a protocol to the convention which says that it's an absolute right of the people of the European Union and the other countries outside of the Union, such as Britain, which is still subject to the convention, to enjoy their property without interference from the state. But then that's subject to, like all of the things in the European Convention and and like all the things in the Human Rights Act, it's subject to the right for states to infringe on it where where there is a proper justification. And so the, the point would be that they would have to argue that there was a proper justification in every case basically and the, but this i think the other point that they would have to manage in regards to the human rights is the kind of predictability of legal processes which is guaranteed by article 6 and so there is a statutory framework in england and wales for dealing with sanctions and money laundering there has to be a separate one now that we're no longer members of the european union and so Jakob and I not being international lawyers look this up before we started and the Sanctions and Money Laundering Act 2018 is the sort of starting point for that which which provides statutory basis for the powers of the UK government to interfere with people's convention rights to enjoy their property. But you did say that when, you did say this key phrase, when states consider something just but that is quite often motivated by political pressures and decisions. We see it today between Russia and Ukraine. Of course, it is a war and we identified who the aggressor is. Nonetheless, sanctions and the extent of them is largely political. So it, it's, it's, a, 
it's an interesting legal and human rights conundrum as to where where's the level of justification mm. when it's still okay to just accept that some individuals are sanctioned just because they their assets come from or wealth comes from a particular country well it's an interesting point that's going to have to be dealt with i mean we we operate at the moment in a time where courts are being told not to be political and to main and to in, enforce and apply the law not to decide what the law is but the sanctions anti-money laundering act provides a mechanism where if you don't think it's fair that the uk government has applied sanctions to you you can ask to be taken off of the sanctions list or you can ask for the uk government to apply to the un or eu or whatever to take you off the sanctions list so and that specifies that there's a right where if you don't if they don't agree with the UK government's decision, if you think that you should be taken off the list, but the government says no, because you're not going to appeal if you want to remain sanctioned, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> um, you can go to the High it's Court. It's not probably your preferred option, <laughs> is it? I don't think anybody wants to be sanctioned. It sounds like it's a real chore. You've got all these lovely yachts, and then suddenly you're <laughs> having to get the bus around the place. It sounds like a nightmare. But the High Court would have to make a decision as to whether or not it was appropriate for you to remain sanctioned. Now... The case that I read about this was on the issue of a gentleman who claimed that he was not a member of um, Al-Qaeda and all the Taliban or related groups based in Afghanistan. And the High Court was asked to make a decision as to whether or not he, in fact, was related to um, terrorist activities through Al-Qaeda and all the Taliban. That's kind of the decision that a court is well placed to make, because a court can look mm. at the evidence, can look at, you know, can look at this guy's life and see is he factually involved in and terrorism then they, they would remove the person from the sanctions list if he yeah i think it's you could make the argument that he's not a terrorist and that's a decision that the court is able to make and does make in criminal cases in terrorism cases where it becomes a bit muddier is like to take the hot topic of the day um and especially for our west london listeners roman abramovich all of the, it's all so vague what's said about him he's close to putin he's involved in the highest levels of the russian state there's no denying that he seems to be there's pictures of him being pally with senior members of the russian government but there are questions uh, about the source of wealth <clears throat> there's questions about the source of wealth which is another fascinating podcast in itself i mean yes but how many people on this planet would be facing similar sort of um, question marks about the origins of their wealth even in the western world 14 maybe and all of them live in the same part of kensington um (laughs) the difficulty i think for the high court is that they're going to say well is it just for this person to be sanctioned and then they're going to it's going to come into kind of questions which the court will have to answer about is this an appropriate way of applying pressure on the russian state is roman abramovich a sufficiently well-connected person that by applying pressure to him you're applying pressure to the russian state and in the middle of it all you lead to this hilarious situation where chelsea football club is kind of in this limbo because i think yes um so that's the second that's the next point we've got on the list so let's just say all of all of this has gone the government's way no challenge has succeeded if it was ever submitted to the court. And now an asset or an individual with particular assets has been sanctioned. We've got Roman Abramovich with his Chelsea club. So we can freeze the assets, so to speak. But it's hard to freeze a living club which has got commitments 
long-term commitments to its players, to the maintenance of the grounds, to the various competitions and so on, to the spectators. And then it freezes the assets, so you limit it as to what you can do with it. You can't control it, the one who's been sanctioned, but the government doesn't have the step B. It can't actually sell it or pass it on to somebody else, do much with it. It just sits there in this frozen limbo, which is okay if it's a bank account or a yacht in a dockyard, that's fine. But if it's a football club or company, that could that could cause some complications. So the government gets put in this bizarre situation, and obviously Chelsea is the thing that's been in the news, where they have to work out what they can... They, they've taken control, effectively, of these assets. They now have to work out what they can do with it. So I saw an article in the paper where government ministers were having to consider exactly the amount of money to be allowed out of Chelsea Football Club's bank account for them to go to away football matches. And in the end, they decided that it would be appropriate to allow £20,000 per team. But the government's got to make these sorts of... Mm. curious. It, it puts itself in this position. What, what they can't do is to nationalise the club. <laughs> because that would... It's still a, a, a frozen asset subject to sanctions. So the government can't just simply claim it to be their own. The People's Republic of Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> Although I've listened to a radio broadcast recently and somebody elaborated on the possibility of Chelsea being ever uh, publicly owned <laughs> and how would the question time, uh, the Prime Minister's question time in the Parliament every Wednesday look like if the opposition <laughs> asks him about... Uh, the poor defence he played last week. <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing for that is that, like, a sanction is all very well for something like a football club. And it's an odd example because football clubs cost money. They don't make money. You put money in and then football and prestige comes out. That's We but... did say, sorry to interrupt, <laughs> that this was not meant to be political. But also, it's not meant to be about football. Fine. I think <clears throat> it's time to end uh, today's podcast by perhaps summarising that governments and other authorities, they have the right to impose sanctions. They Sometimes they need to justify the, themselves when in, the sanctions are being imposed. But once the asset is frozen or in the state of limbo, as we call it, then they can't do much with it. It just sits there until the f- sanctions are lifted or something else happens there's another decision which supersedes them yeah well, that's where we are so that's where we are with the with the various properties around london owned by russian oligarchs at the moment much like this podcast we have to have a plan for how it's going to end and the government i think it's a question that needs to be addressed in all of these situations you look at iran was something that we talked about a moment ago and they it was tied very much into their nuclear plan and so there was a plan as to how that might end and there were conditions and it said if you stop enriching uranium and if you stop doing these centrifuges and that other thing and focus on then these are the steps that we can take to release sanctions and that was in my view quite well thought out but it is looking at it from the legal way of thinking whenever i would apply for a freezing injunction in relation to assets held by somebody in a case of mine so i I at the moment have a case where a a gentleman has a number of bank accounts and we're concerned that he's going to take them to another country so we've got a freezing injunction one of the things that the high court will say is before i give this injunction 
what is your end game for this? Because I'm not just going to, the judge will say, open-endedly freeze this chap's life. He's got to get on. He's got to live. And it's not reasonable or fair for him to be stuck in indefinite limbo. What is the success condition of this sanction, effectively, that I'm imposing upon this person? And we will say resolution of the case, settlement of... um, court's decision etc and it's quite easy to say because there's an end goal in a court proceedings in the current situation that we're in as you say there's a number of houses in kensington a number of yachts in dockyards and the government i think acknowledges that they can't just take them and sell them and then use the money to fix potholes so what what, what's going to happen but arguably uh, we have not really found the end goal you would not ordinarily have to justify in your cases in court, unless perhaps uh, championship for Chelsea <laughs> would be the ultimate goal of sanctions. No, of course not. That was just um, a last note uh, to, to finish this podcast. I have been Jakob Gotan. I've been Daniel Flynn. Thank you.